Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this patch video for the web novel First Contact, written by Ralts Bloodthorn, which is available on both Royal Road and HFY. The links for them will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. First Contact, Chapter 62 Space twisted, warped and rent and screamed with the amount of firepower being hammered across the surface of space-time. Massive kinetic shells tore rents into space-time to leak out space energy across hundreds of thousands of miles. The rents hundreds of miles deep. Missiles exited hyperspace aligned, aimed and fired their warheads off filling their section of space-time with lasers, particle beams, directed nuclear, detonation, iron slugs, and even atomic fire compressed and focused into a slashing line. A temporal resonance cannon fired, tearing a matter across the fourth dimension. A singularity cannon barked out tiny artificial singularities with a short half-life that detonated at the target distance determined by boiling point of the hyperdense masses. Shields bled, stopped by absorbing energy, slamming back as from the reactive armor. Blunted and twisted and bent energy beams rippled the four dimensions to gore the ship of generating it. The Goliath was beginning to peel heat across its supercomputing lobes. Not excess heat, not measurable heat, just heat. Every time that annoying craft, now much bigger than it had been, came spiraling in on another attack run, it was able to get closer, penetrate to where the psychic shutdown field reached saturation of nearly 230% of normal. The Goliath had been forced not only to increase the power of that field to an unheard of degree, but had been forced to increase its own psychic shielding to resist commands and raw, untamed psychic attacks. No longer was each attack carefully estimated for resource consumption versus survival rating and possibly resource recovery. The Goliath strategic intelligence array had killed those programming strings as useless. The enemy was tenacious, rabid, feral, without any caution of the old races. The logical limit of 10% resources no longer held any meaning to the Goliath. The enemy had taught it that it was not shepherding the resources in a life-and-death fight. The Goliath was over a hundred million years old, had sterilized hundreds, thousands of worlds, reclaimed the resources of hundreds of species, and had defeated dozens of old enemy war vessels. This one, this new feral enemy, was beyond anything the old vessels or the builders had ever computed would arise. And ignored the 10% rule of entropy and consumption, and ignored the standard break and retreat protocol. It kept coming, no matter what. A handful of NCV cannon shells had struck the new enemy amidship, leaving it reading, heating over onto the side, streaming vapor and debris. Before the Goliath could press any advantage, the new enemy had rightened itself, charged forward, and kept attacking. The Goliath had determined that the new enemy, the rabid feral intellect that screamed in painful waves of sheer denial, had some mechanism to allow for self-repair that vastly outstripped its size. The new enemy had begun its latest attack. It launched parasite craft, highly maneuverable craft that seemed each to be different. 
The Goliath had learned to watch for the class of ship that slammed through the psychic intelligence disruptors field to drop heavy antimatter and other explosives of unknown type and mechanics onto the surface of the armor of the Goliath. That class of ship was deemed a priority for interception. The feral intelligence had also been adding more than particle screens to its massive and torpedoes, aiding in deflection and battle screens, meaning the Goliath had been forced to build heavier point-defense guns with engaged in combat. In its entire unliving existence, the Goliath had never been forced to run the strategic intelligence array at nearly 100% capacity. The feral intelligence had forced the Goliath to exceed tolerances, exceed core programming network and array usage. The Goliath had entire memory banks full of new data and weapons, propulsion systems, but no way to collate the data beyond identifying the incoming weaponry. Even its short reprieve from the original manufacturing world had helped very little. The facilities of the Omnibuild Corps had rejected all the Goliath's attempt to upload the data as there were no builder race technicians to bypass the safety interlocks that the Goliath's servitors could not go within the electronic intelligence disruption field. An old core programming prevented him from disabling those parts of the facility. Now the builder race queen was attacking him having given up on ordering him to submit, and he had been forced to lift off the planet as the Builder Race Queen had weaponized the planet's very magnetic field against him. The Feral Intelligence had immediately moved into attack, possessing longer-range weaponry than the Goliath possessed, a more nimble ship with incredibly superior shielding to the massive Goliath. This was suboptimal. The Omni Queen snarled psychically and physically as the Goliath lifted off the planet, avoiding her magnetic storm focused hitting its strategic intelligence array. Lifting off the planet with such a force, its engine stopped the rock almost into the mantle. A feral intelligence, its mind ravening and raving, immediately moved into the system, firing those cannons that gave it such extreme range. She had been forced to hatch workers, overseers, warriors, and speakers, dividing her psychic abilities in order to dominate them. For a trembling moment, she considered burning out her own drone's brains, leaving them dead, in order to entirely focus on the feral intelligence and the rogue great old war machine. Then she had paused. Her goal was no longer to capture the great old war machine or capture destruction of the feral intelligence. It was now just to have them leave the system before she was put in any more risk. Two other queens were already dead. Her psychic array that gathered dozens of systems close to her watchful eyes were damaged. Having them present was no longer the best interest of the survival of her species or herself. Her blind eyes staring at the walls of a birthing chamber, she watched the two combatants with her psychic senses. Not able to sense what was going on across the entire stellar system in real time as psychic abilities was instantaneous, not restricted by primitive restrictions like the speed of light. She focused as best she could on the howling, screaming, gnashing feral intelligence that screamed at her with blare and sore rage, its sheer fury ripping into her own ego, id, and glassentian senses. How it was nothing more than a raw, snarling point screaming at her to not touch it, not look at it, not even remember it. Perhaps it would be the Goliath badly enough that she could overwhelm its psychic shields and take control of it. Wherever the inspiraled intelligence came from, the Omni Queen needed to know, so she could send fleets to destroy it before it risked destroying her perfect presence. 
She reached out again and felt the feral intelligence retract her with a feeling of white-hot talons scraping across her mind. Daxon felt the queen's attempt to reach past his shields, past his defenses, and screamed in rage across the broadcast system. He no longer had a physical body, had not had one in a millennia, but had learned to scream in rage and hatred nonetheless. The big Goliath was already on the attack, and the guns thundering with enough strength to make space around it visibly ripple. Its drives were going full power, wrenching the massive structure out of the planet's gravity well, even as the planet's magnetic field focused and breaks across the side. Daxon's parasite ships didn't lunge forward, not like last time, but instead stayed close. Point events hot and ready, battle screens up and humming, their scanners and predictive analysis software running hard with the warboys capering and dancing through the systems. All of them loaded up with their taxi RCs to give them an extra edge of humming aggression and rage. He reached out reflexively to stroke Fido's petting nerve, but there was nothing there. That made the anger, the rage surge up. I just want left alone. Instruments reported a surge of energy consistent with the big Goliath's hull calls being powered up. As Daxon moved, he saw the huge ship start to rip open space, tearing open a portal to hull space. He knew it was attempting to escape and snarled. He loaded old chaos strings to let him estimate and analyze hull space paths the precursor machine might try to use. The Omni-Queen felt the old war machine open the portal into the boiling and burling hyperatomic space that allowed for faster-than-light travel. She recoiled from that rip in space-time, feeding energies that distorted and damaged space-time between dimensions, reaching out for her, screaming, howling, attempting to pull her mind in and tear it apart in gnashing teeth and jaws. The old war machine still traversed that destroyed place made her shudder, but... With a single exception, there was no other way to move faster than light, and there never would be. She knew now why the feral intelligence was so screaming and insane. It had subjected itself to psychic resonance of a dimension destroyed by the enemy over a hundred million years before. The living could not enter hyperatomic space any longer, not if they wished to remain stained. She withdrew slightly, giving time for the feral intelligence to follow the rebel old machine. It tore open its own hyperatomic gate, slipped inside of it, and vanished. It took long revolutions of nearly dead planet that she was on a psychic resonance to stop rippling through the system. She used that time to confer with the lesser overqueens to reestablish her authority that had been so wounded by the defiance of the old rebel war machine and the large rage of the feral intelligence. There was more life in the galaxy, life that had risen up without soothing and calming hand of the Omni-Queen or the enemy. Feral intelligence, little better than animals, that had managed to not only tame spaceflight, but traverse the hyperatomic plane even as damaged and destroyed and inhospitable to life as it had become. If feral intelligence had arisen, what were the chances that the enemy had also survived? She had received reports that their homeworld had been scoured clean of all life, his resources claimed for the defiant and rogue machines. But the Omni-Queen had considered a factor that the previous over-queens had not. A space-faring race is difficult to extinguish, even with war machines moving from system to system. Eventually, they will reach the end of a mathematically possible spread of her own race to that of the enemy. 
She knew that the previous Omniqueen had ordered Overqueens to rush through the enemy systems, fleeing to rogue machines, pulling both fleets after them. While her egg and her eggs of her servants had slumbered deep beneath the crust behind the psychic shields. The plan had been that the Overqueens to pull the fleets into the enemy, to force the enemy to engage the unliving might of both fleets as her own people fled beyond the reasonable distance via the incredibly slow and risky jump space that her race had recently discovered. Because none of her race had ever returned, she had always believed that her people had been destroyed beyond the senses of the previous Omni-Queens, caught between the anvil of the enemy and the hammer of both rogue machine fleets. But the feral intelligences had managed to arise and gain enough advancement to discover how to access the hyperatomic plane, then perhaps her ancestors had managed to survive and flee the final war. The Omni-Queen figured the chances of feral intelligence discovering the intricate and elegant equations to even slightly detect jump space, much less harness it, was almost zero. The Omni-Queen began to give orders, commanding the remaining minions to begin to build, to hatch several other species that were rarely used any longer. The feral intelligence's psychic shields had a particular taste, a particular flavor. A shield was behind the other shield, not to protect the feral intelligence from her, but uh, to protect her race from it. A peculiar flavor indeed, a flavor distinctly manted. Now, why would a feral intelligence arisen from a hundred million years after the final war install shielding in its ship to protect manted minds from the insanity of the feral intelligence's wrathful burning thoughts? The Omni-Queen boozed over the fact. There was only one conclusion. Her people had survived, and the bowels of the ancient shipyard machine stirred to life as newly hatched manteds began to carry out the Queen's orders to build a jump space-capable ship and crew it with speakers abroad. There were still an old racial memories of the path her ancestors had intended to take. Perhaps there were other mantid omni or over queens to bring into the fold. Daxon gritted his non-existent teeth and wrapped his hands around the controls, staring at the Goliath fleeing from him through hull space. Part of him knew that he should break it off, should head back to the confit space and report the massive Goliath, but it had proved too quick to adapt. With hidden shipyards and maintenance facilities all over the long dock, he could break off, but the giant spacecraft would learn too much to let go. And Daxon had never been too good at letting things go. His memory simulator brought up an old memory, standing on the beaches of Rigel, still mostly flesh, with an arm around a young woman, not in a romantic way, but a protective way. Abilthika bubbled up to his mind. Who? Abithika, your daughter. The memory tattered his implant kept him from losing himself in memories or sensations. It had been a long time since that particular piece of cyberware had kicked in, and for the moment he worried about the amount of time he'd spent in cell space. He was running Hull Space Shields, hyperatomic planar shields, from all the way back during the Space Marines' Black Heresy Crusade. He could feel the energies of house place plucking at his mind, squeezing the talons that left bloody furrows in his memories and feelings. For the Codex of Terrasol Brothers, echoed in his mind, with a taste of war steel carbon in his non-existent tongue. Why would I remember that, Daxon thought to himself, as the Goliath suddenly dropped out of house space. As Daxon exited out, still collapsing the gates, he heard the precursor scream, There is more than one... 
Jackson noted the Goliath's health base was still running. Charging up, powering up, his senses started registering the system around him. Reduced to almost barren rubble, the system had little to offer the Goliath, slowly orbiting the dwarf star inside the orbit of Mercury back on the Sol system. Daxon reached for the switch to deploy his weapons and stopped. The massive Goliath was tearing open another Hullspace portal before the old one had entirely closed. Daxon charged his Hull calls, ignoring the pain, and instead of opening his own portal, got in close to the Goliath and began to move into Hullspace through the ragged wound in space. Prepare for boarding, torpedoes, brothers, rang in his head. Daxon frowned as the best he could as the ship pulled off the Goliath into Hullspace. He gritted his teeth and his shields went down and the warboy started ravening in the hash bears. He saw Hullspace tear at the Goliath, saw the great machine's armor ripple and torn into the Hullspace engines. For the Emperor! Daxon shook his head, trying to dispel the memories of a life that he had left behind when his meat went body when. Wait, of course, Daxon would have raised an eyebrow if he still possessed them. The answer was obvious, blindingly obvious. But the fires of Hullspace were bright enough to wipe away the thought when one needed it the most. Hull's calls had not been discharged and had not used their energy to rip open a Hullgate. They still thrummed with power and Daxon had fed his engines the Hullspace energies, beating the ship slide across the greasy slick feel of Hullspace. He used instruments in Hullspace that were developed by the forces of the Black Heresy, created to give the insane rulers of the Eye of Terror an advantage over anyone else who dared enter their hellish realm. Daxon could still see in Hullspace, more than that, he could move in Hullspace. The Goliath was merely transitioning in Hullspace, carefully feeding energies of Hullish dimension into his engines from the Hull core. Daxon slowly caught up to and then began to pass over the top of the massive machine. Craters the size of cities brought a great and futile price, slowly moved beneath him. Daxon himself had left many upon the armored hide of the machine himself, and he avoided those, knowing that they would be a priority for repair by the great machine. With no shields to protect it from Daxon, it was able to land on the surface of the Goliath, slowly settling onto the bottom of the crater the size of a city. His own craft, the Adaptus Cruiser, was completely lost amongst the molten rehardened armor flows. His own instruments, calibrated and designed for Hullscape, showed that there was only a few meters of armor between him and his ship, molecular bonded armor to the Goliath, and some kind of open space no bigger than a being could drive a wheeled cargo truck down. Daxon knew that it would detect a stray radio pulses, unknown digital presence, and loaded it himself into a combat frame, ensuring that he was heavy armored and protected. When he left his ship, he made sure not to look up keeping the bulk of his cruiser between the energies of Hullspace and the hull of the Goliath. He worked carefully and quickly in managing to gain access inside the Goliath. Nearly eight miles into the armor, the passage ran miles in each direction, a mesh of interconnecting smaller and larger passages. Once inside, Daxon put a stealth seal on the hull and dug through the meters of armor, working quickly, grasping at the energies of Hullspace slowly ebbing away from him. He cast around with his light, feeling like he should see dust and evidence of antiquity. Instead, the passages were smooth, clean. Hefting his weapon and activating his reflex trigger, Daxon began to move. It was only a couple hundred miles away from the core. Daxon intended on finding the ship's AI and kicking a huge hole in it. He'd even brought his kicking boots. 
End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 63 Dreams The EVRVI added sparks of motion and dreams slowly finished sharpening her blade arms to one of her favorite little songs. She sat in her favorite spot in her favorite EVR simulation. Mr. Rings curled up and sleeping in his bowler and the rain dropped around her. She was almost finished, just one more repetition of the ancient song. Are you ready, kids? I can't hear you. Oh, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? She sang softly to herself as she slowly scraped the blade arm against each other and slowly hard light sparks. She closed her eyes, feeding the anchors. Sharp enough, hard enough to slice through dura alloy and endo steel like paper. Dangerous enough to leave scouring marks on wall steel. Dreams opened her eyes as she finished, sparks floating around her. She reached up, adjusting her beret, and summoned the reflective hollow image of herself. The beret was just at the right angle. Her denim vest covered in patches and strange places that she'd visited on terror. A coat over her abdomen, chrome-studded black leather gloves that grasped hands. She kept her donor cycle chain on her belt, next to the vote switch blade. With her communicator and small hand weapon, she shifted the vest a little, admiring the patch she had brought from the tomb of Rushmore, where the giant four-headed tyrant of ancient America had been imprisoned in stone for all time, only his heads thrust out of the solid rock of the mountain. Behind her rack and pinion began to move, dropping the EVR construct that made them appear as gentle Pacific Northwest Sasquatch. Dreams had managed to smuggle the heavier weapon packs than they had initially shown up with after the lawyers of Jackson, Johnson, and Johnson had filed and gotten approval for the paperwork, making it perfectly legal for the two warborgs to walk around with battle screens and hypervelocity autocannons. Jack Johnson, Esquire, had informed Dreams that the laid VI systems of the Unified Legal Council had just taken a stamping Terran lawsuits with approved rather than sending billions of credits worth of cycles to completely go over every little bit. From what John Jackson, Esquire, had informed her, the layered VI had begun taking its peek at the massive Terran filings out in the Unified Council's attempt at legal paperwork by denying them outright and kicking them back for missing forms, references, and proper citations, and improper precedence listings. It made dreams giggle a little bit that the Unified Justice Council had thought that they could go toe-to-toe with the Terran legal institutions like Jackson, Johnson, and Johnson and come out unbloodied. They were persistent rumors at the predating of the Terran Dispora that most lawyers had large amounts of DNA from something called a shark woven into their genetic helixes. Dreams had seen sharks once off the walled shores of old Hawaii. She had admired their sleek forms, their lethalness, and their dedication to consuming anything that they wished in the ocean, teeming with hostile and combative life. Are you gentlemen ready? Dreams asked her escorts. Yes, ma'am. To both replied at once. She had given them standing orders not to speak across anything but data links, to ignore anyone who attempted to converse with them. She also ordered them to leave up their firewalls and shields as if they were entering a heavy EW zone. Let's do some tourism, Dream said, and carefully made her way to the door. She left the EVR up so that Mr. Rings could exercise and find the treats that she'd hidden around the room. Both the Warborgs were always amused by Dream's overwhelming desire to see new places and experience the culture. 
She had taken them to many exotic locations over the decades, and they had been her personal guide. She had a soft spot for terror and pterosaur culture, which amused the two warborgs. They had met more than a few mantids over the decades, and the one thing that they all shared was a love, almost an obsession, with human culture. Dreams had explained it. The majority of races, by the time they even achieved nuclear power generation mastery, were a single overarching culture with a little to no diversity. Where Terra had a dizzying blend of culture that were all distinct yet the common threads throughout, that all blended into a fractious end and endlessly kaleidoscope whole. On the worlds that they had visited, guarding dreams, they had seen how correct she was. The Harvard disc was waiting. She had invited her fellow mantids, but they had all chosen to remain in the unified ambassadorial council building. Words spoken, we fear, had offered to go with her, but she'd reminded him that he was to speak of the admiral in charge of the fleet. As they exited the embassy, more war borgs joined her. Terran Confederacy Marines, a diplomatic detachment, three to front and back and four in the left and right. Rack and Pinion were inside the square. The day was bright, but not too bright. UV, IR, the invisible light filters in the sky keeping the sunlight down to tolerable to all races. While dreams, it seemed quite bright, both as her escorts felt it was slightly dim. Dreams noted how many guards she had, just beyond the mandatory 20-meter diplomatic space she was insisting upon. She was glad that she did not have the human mouth. She would have sneered visibly at the amount of guards that she could see as they were sent to offset the massive warborgs around her. The unified civilized races could throw anything they wanted at those warborgs without any effort. War steel could handle the hellfire of atomic weaponry even whilst softening. The hover disk purred, the outside opaque to the common visual and recording spectrums from the outside, but perfectly clear from the inside. She had a few data screens up, not many, leaning forward against the inclining cushion. She had refused to offer the limousines the rest of the diplomats used. Her hover disk was custom made from the Area 51 saucers, stuffed with girls with all kinds of special order features and a full EVR if she wished it. She even had a small play area for Mr. Rings if the shy little octopod just wanted to come along or had not wanted to left alone. Traffic was rerouted by the Unified Law Enforcement Council, giving her clear lanes. She would have preferred just to have one of the few escorts to go to shopping and see the sights, but the reality of the grand civilized species had made her rethink her plans. On Terrasol, she had been surrounded by gleeful predators in their natural environment, following ancient rituals not not ever her race glassing parts of the planet had wiped out. In other human societies, she had still been surrounded by predators, playing with entire worlds or solar systems. The humans saw the entire universe as a prey-full playground full of endless resources, having grown to sapiens on a planet that was low resource and high conflict. Here, every species she could see could make her drool if they had less self-control, rather than the constant come-chase-fun excitement each dance of the Terran and the Trainet worlds and the other worlds that were part of the Terran Confederacy. There was instead something different, almost a plea to be eaten. Just seeing the various old races made her drool. Their appearance and the slight taste of their minds activating her saliva and digesting juices. She knew why. They had been genetically altered millions and years ago by her people.
football food. After meeting the humans, the races that the humans had met, seeing the humans uplift so many of their native creatures, she had forgotten that other intelligent races had been altered to be nothing more than an ambulatory sandwich. She knew that it wasn't their fault, but the small part of her blamed them. The humans had evolved on a planet that had undergone multiple extinction events. During the last one, if you didn't count the great glassing, they had been little more than lemurs. They had evolved under constant threat and had risen to being a spacefaring race. The sentient races that had arisen near them had all managed the same thing, some of them even evolving on planets that had been devastated by the Precursor War. Dreams had noticed that a lot of sapiens discovered by the Terrans were much more like the Terrans, while not as aggressive or physically tough or imaginative or, well, alive as the Terrans, they had still evolved on a world on their own. The planet that Dreams was currently on, drifting down the road inside her harbor disk, had been terraformed about 110 million years ago, and that the Lanak Talan had built civilization on it once Dreams people had left had left a mark on them. Dreams was sure that the Lanak Talan of this planet were almost virtually identical to the ones her people had feasted on. The least Darren medical ship in orbit, a gentle hand had updated her psychic implants, enabling dreams to tune out the grand civilized species. That made shopping tolerable, as she was staring out wide-eyed at a species who had never seen a giant mantis that delicately moved through the shop, examining jewelry and other luxuries. It made exploring the tourist sections tolerable as she drifted through the ponds and trails of the gardens. She took pics and peggies of the scenery, a few of the sculptors, and a few xenospecies. Sadly, most of it was boring, safe, created and fashioned, and approved to be viewed without feeding emotion or having any kind of strong feeding or slight unpleasant feedings so as much as it trickled the viewer. There was nothing to tickle her tendrils or really bring her senses to more than just a light curiosity. One thing that did catch her notice was a small hollow marker on a desk. Dreams was in a shop to purchase a few small handcrafted ceramic tchotchkes when she saw the little hollow markers. Takumba Custom Ceramics. She took the card, sliding it into a pocket of her denim vest, purchasing the ceramics and left. Once she was in a hover disk, she took out the card and ran the number. The hover disk was moving along back to the diplomatic embassy. The number connected to a personal store where ceramic was being sold. Dreams admired the beautiful workmanship of the pieces, the attention to detail, the subtle flaws that even the master's work possessed. She ran template comparisons to see if the items had been run off a fabricator. She found some that were close, but her educated compound eyes could tell her that all the items were indeed handcrafted with skill and tools. She tapped on the ruin ball, contacting the crafter. A shavenish female answered and Dreams noticed that she had drying ceramics on her neck. Tataunga Custom Ceramics, the Shavashan female said. She frowned, I'm not accustomed to privacy screen calls and I do not like anonymous orders. Please show yourself. Dreams triggered her camera, allowing her image to appear. The Shavashan's eyes opened wide. I've seen you on the trivid, the Syrian exclaimed. Dreams flashed a run of ascent. I am dreams of something more. The Demeron Confederacy diplomat to your government, Dreams said. The Shavashan nodded, swallowing. Why, why uh, would you call me? She asked. Dreams tapped two icons, sending an image to the crossed beings. Can you create something like this for me? Color matched by the construction. 
The Shabashan nodded again, swallowing as she did. Of course, honorable one, but surely you can just have it fabricated. Rashing the ruin for a negative, Dream shook her head. Fabrication unit is smooth it, make it flawless, just like the touch of the spirit of a crafts being has. Can you do it? Still nodding, the Shabashan looked over the file. I can? How soon do you want it? Dream shrugged. When it's done, crafts being, I do not rush true workmanship. The Shabashan nodded, flashing the ruin, expressing pleasure. Here is the deposit. Please send me a picture of your work as it progresses, Dream said. Her account had plenty of the local currency in it. She had compared the price of a reasonably close size and complexity piece to what she wanted, doubled it, and then doubled that. Lady Ambassador, surely I can't. The Shamashan protested upon seeing the money transferred. I can, and if you are willing to craft it for me, I'll pay the remaining amount. I will have some bark samples and moss samples sent to you this evening for your reference, Dream said. As you wish, Lady Ambassador, the Shabashan said. Thank you for your patronage. Thank you for your dedication and skill. Dreams replied and then cut the feed. She sat humming to herself, quite happy with her purchase. The day had not been a total loss. She had found a few hats that she would like the look of on her head, along with a few artistic torso garments and an abdomen wrap or two. She floated all the way to her quarters, climbing down off the hover disk when necessary, then walked into the remainder of the way to her quarters. Humming and smiling to herself, she tapped open the door and walked in. Mr. Rings, guess what mommy bought you? She stopped as Rack and Pinion both activated the shoulder-mounted cannons. Mr. Rings was sitting on top of dead Langtaland, pushing its tentacles into a hole that it had chewed in the side of the creature's abdomen, and dreams watched. A little, arboreal octopi pulled a hunk of muscle tissue and shoved it into its mouth. Dreams noticed that rings around Mr. Rings' eyes were bright blue where the rings in his tentacles were a duller in color. The Langtalan was laying near the disruptor pistol, dried foam around its mouth. It was obvious to Dreams that the Lanactalan had been moving towards Dreams' sleeping quarters when Mr. Rings had dropped from a tree branch and onto the Lanactalan's back and killed it. Dreams couldn't help it. She started giggling. Rack and Pinion both made grinding noises of amusement as Mr. Rings looked at them with wide, innocent eyes and shoved another chunk of tissue into his mouth. Mr. Rings! Naughty! Dreams giggled. Mr. Rings grabbed one more hunk of flesh and climbed up into the branch of trees. Rack and Pinion called down that there was a dead intruder in the ambassador's chamber. As soon as everyone turned around, Mr. Rings dropped down and grabbed another piece, climbing out of reach when Dreams chastised him. Dreams just giggled as she sat and watched the medical services haul away a dead Lanark to land. Mr. Rings staying hiding in his bowler chewing on a piece of liver that he had absconded with while Mommy was talking to the big tasty people. End of chapter And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode. And I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.